And good afternoon. It's just a few seconds after 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce here, and this is Finding a Voice, a spoken word program airing here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. And we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. And coming up on the show today... In the first hour from a November 7th book launch event at Novel Idea Bookstore, you'll hear Mark Zolk uh, discuss his latest book in the series, River Battles, Canada's Final Campaign in World War II Italy. Following that, from the November 5th and the Journey Continues Open Mic monthly series, you'll hear readings by John, uh, Ron Chase, Leanne Terrace, and Graham and Gwen Whitford. And in that semi, uh, second hour then, from the same And the Journey Continues open mic series, you'll hear readings, or the event that night, actually, uh, you'll hear readings by Jenny Marshall, Time Victim, Sasha Hill, Bob McKenzie, Meg Freer, Matt Drabenstadt, uh, Ken Chin, Lyle Miriam, Corey Toke, Chris Carney, uh, John uh, Rose, uh, Sarah Emtej. Let's see, I'm going down the list. Yeah, Eric Folsom, Ron Chase again, because uh, they we it's two rounds and I error. Uh, uh, yeah, so it's a poetry in the round. So each poet reads one poem. So we starting then in the second round at the end of this second hour. So again, you're going to hear Ron Chase and Graham. Gwen Whitford, Jenny Marshall, Sasha Hill, and uh, I have a reading in there somewhere as well. Uh, this first, though, the usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So, up first, at his book launch at Novel Idea Bookstore, you're going to hear Mark Zulk, I hope I'm saying that right, uh, reference and discuss his new book. And I believe it is the last in this series. I'm not sure. I thought that's what he mentioned that night. It will be the final book in that series uh, leading up to this. But this one is called uh, River Battles, Canada's Final Campaign in World War II Italy. So here's Mark. Um, so I'm Mark Salvi, and this is the 13th volume in a series I've been writing for, it seems like, most of my life, <laughs> called the Canadian Battle Series. And it, uh, what it has been doing is tracing the experiences of the Canadian Army, the, the battles and campaigns that were critical to the process of the Canadian Army through World War II. This is the fifth, and at this point I'm saying final, volume of um, books on the Italian campaign and the role of Canadian Army in that campaign. So it goes to looking at the last months of the time when the Canadian Army was in Italy. Uh, it starts with the end of a major battle that was called the Gothic Line Battle. Um, and the Gothic Line was the last major fortified line that the Germans had in Italy. And by September 22nd, 
First Canadian Corps had broken through this line on the Adriatic coast just by the city of Rimini, which is um, a short distance south of Venice. It had been a long month of sustained and bloody battle for breaking the Gothic line. It cost the Canadians 4,511 casualties and another 1,005 were evacuated with illnesses. When the battle ended, normally a, a corps would have been stood down and given time to rest and recoup and, and bring in reinforcements and build themselves up. But the Allies decided that they couldn't do that because they were afraid if they stood down that the Germans would retreat and that um, ultimately what it would do is enable the Germans to send divisions to Northwest Europe where they could oppose the break-in into the uh, into Germany that was being worked towards. So uh, First Canadian Corps is ordered to keep going. They, um, fifth, the First Canadian Infantry Division is so badly mauled that um, they are pulled out of the lines. Uh, and Fifth Canadian Armoured Division with the Second New Zealand Armoured Division carry on the advance. They are advancing into what they, and this is why there's two armoured divisions, they're advancing into what they hope and they call the promised land. It's the Emilia Romagna, and it's a vast plain. And what they thought was wide open country means good tank country, that the tanks would be able to run wild. And as Lieutenant Colonel Jim McCavity of the Strathcona Horse Regiment put it, that we could, the tanks could run wild in a mad gallop to the pole. Um, that was the idea, and the initial um, objective is a city called Ravenna, which is on the uh, Adriatic coast as well. It's only 55 kilometers from Rimini, so it seems like a very short distance and a very easy and attainable objective. However, as the offensive began, it starts to rain. And almost immediately, Corps and 5th Armored Division intelligence staff realize they've seriously goofed. Um, the Allies had been studying the Emilia Romagna by looking at the countryside around Bologna, which is 110 kilometers inland. Bologna is the promised land, the country around there. It is wide open stretches of of plains and, and uh, farm fields and good grain country. But the uh, landscape on the Adriatic side is a reclaimed swamp. It was drained by the Roman Empire and then in through the medieval, age, medieval ages, drained more, and then drained more in modern times with pumps, electric pumps and stuff and fuel-driven pumps being put in. So what the Italians did is they took all the rivers that used to flood and spread all over the plain and they channeled them and they contained them with inside dikes that were 20 feet high on each side. So now you've got the water channeled, you can drain out the ground and you can farm it. It all sounds very good, still could be tank country, but the rivers and the canals all run parallel across the line of advance that the Canadians are now heading into. And 
the Germans, they'd lost their last fortified line, but they don't need to build fortifications because the dikes are fortified lines. All they have to do is dig into the dikes and put in their machine guns and their mortars and they can meet the Canadians. The Canadians are now going to have to get into assault boat, collapsible assault boats, paddle across and establish a beachhead under fire and then expand that beachhead. And they have to do this over and over and over again and that's why it's called the river battles because there you are. You get across one river, go a couple kilometers, and there's another river. And you have to do this process over and over and over again. So the Canadians command under Lieutenant Tommy General Tommy Burns of Canadian First Canadian Corps, and the new Eighth uh, Army commander, Lieutenant General Richard McCreary, had thought they could be in Ravenna easily by the end of October. Instead, they are they only get about a quarter of the way to Ward's Ravenna, and they reach a river called the Savio, and there's the fighting by this time is so intense that the landscape has been every building, every farm, every town has been reduced to rubble by bombing and shelling and, and bombardment. It becomes a World War I landscape of, of destruction. They get to the Savio and it's running high, a lot of water running through there, the rivers, the rains are continuing. Um, they decide they, there's no way they can get tanks across to support an attack. So the two battalions of the uh, 2nd Infantry Brigade, uh, the Seaforth Islanders of Canada, and the Loyal Edmonton Regiment, force a crossing there. And in the Gothic Line battle, at the very end in a place called San Fortunato Ridge, the Loyal Eddies had managed to knock out a Tiger tank using a combination of Piet guns and 75 Hawkins grenades, and I'll explain those both in a moment. As a result of that, the Lieutenant Colonel Jim Stone, who was the new commander of the Eddies, decided to form what he called tank hunting platoons. And very quickly, everybody else in the infantry, 1st Infantry Division adopted this um, unit because it uh, was particularly structured to be able to go up head to head with the tank against the tank because there would be no tank support on our side. So they had hunting platoons consisted of 20 men. They were armed with four Piet guns. They had a lot of number 75 Hawkins grenades and an array of Brand and Thompson submachine guns. Now Piet stands for Projector Infantry Anti-Tank and it fires a two and a half pound round and it's the British and Commonwealth Forces man-carried anti-tank weapon, so similar to the American bazooka, but quite different in, in, in how it actually operates. Number 75 Hawkins anti-tank grenades had a screwed-on cap, and they looked a lot like a water flask or a liquor flask. Um, in fact, they looked exactly like that, except that instead of being filled with booze, you put in two pounds of either aminol or TNT explosive, and they weighed about three pounds, you could throw them like a grenade, but they weren't very efficient that way. So what they generally did is the tank guys would run, run them together in a chain across 
a road, bury them. A tank would come along, go over them, its track would crush one, and the explosion would break the track and knock out the tank. That was the, the whole premise behind that. And they worked very well. Um, so the Sea Force, particularly Sea Company and their tank hunting platoon, waded the Savio, which was running quite deep, but still they could get across it by wading, a chest deep. And they moved down a muddy little farm road to a church called the Chiesa de Pievestina. It's a shell-shattered ruin, but it stands directly next to the Cesena Ravenna Road. And we know at this point that the Germans are trying to get out of the town of Cesena and run eastward along this road to reach Ravenna and, and reestablish another defensive line. The Sea Force's job is to stop that. There are, in Sea Company and the Tank Hunting Platoon, a grand total of 50 Sea Force that night. Casualties have been so bad that with what should have been approximately 148 men, there's 50. They arrive, they ambush the, uh, a bunch of Germans who are at the church. They take 19 prisoners and knock out a truck. Then one of their lieutenants is wounded, bringing them down to 49 men. And at that point, they hear an ominous rumble of tracked vehicles coming from Cesena. The tank hunters go into immediate action. And among these guys, is a soldier called Private Ernest Aldea Smokey Smith. Now, Sergeant Keith Thompson, who's the commander of the hunters, he places two of the Piat teams in opposite ditches facing the Cesena Ravenna Road. And then he strings a chain of Hawkins grenades across the road and runs for cover. He gets into cover as a Kubel wagon staff car comes rolling down the road. It misses all the mines but C Company rips into it with automatic fire, kills the driver, the officer jumps out, starts yelling warnings back up to the Germans who are approaching from behind him, and then he's shot down. And so we now have 49 Sea Force, and what's coming towards them is three German Panther tanks, one self-propelled gun, and a half-track that's mounting a 75-millimeter gun, and Another 30 Panzer Grenadiers are riding on the, the, uh, the hulls of the Panthers. The entire force is moving fast. They're trying to break through. They don't appreciate what's facing them. The fully tracked F SPG, a self-propelled gun, triggers one of the Hawking grenades, blows off a track. The SPG swivels then and completely blocks the road. C force throwing grenades and kill that crew. And then from there, the fight descends into a swirling brawl. Behind the SPG is a panther. It now backs up and attempts to get away from the fire of the pit guns that are in the ditch. So it starts to move up that muddy farm, farm road that the uh, Canadian Sea Force had it come down. And here it approached the third pit team, which consisted of three men. Private K.W. Ballard and Private James Tennant. They were both equipped with a Piat, 
and Private Smokey Smith, who's providing cover with a Thompson submachine gun. As the Panther bulls towards them spewing machine gun fire, Tennant gets hit badly in a leg. Smith slings the Thompson behind him. He grabs up the Piat, and as he said, our way was to fight them from the ditches and wait until they got real close, 30 feet or less, because you don't want to fire at a tank with a Piat and bloody well miss, because if you miss, you're dead. They have the machine guns, and they'll eat you alive. He fires his pit. He hits the panther squarely. Its driver panics and starts frantically trying to turn around to escape the line of fire. Ten grenadiers pile off of the tank and start rushing towards Smith, firing their schmeisers and throwing stick grenades. Smith, seeing that this is happening, all this fire coming towards him, does an unusual thing. He steps away from the ditch where Private Tennant is lying into the middle of the road to draw the fire away from his boyhood friend. And he then fires the Thompson at point blank range, kills four of the Germans, and the rest of them flee. Second Panther now starts shooting towards him. Smith is alone. There's just the wounded Tennant in the ditch there with him. At this point, the logical thing would have been for Smith to have run and leave Tennant. But, as his Victoria Cross citation says, Smith steadfastly held his position protecting his comrade and fighting the enemy with his Tommy gun until they finally gave up and withdrew in disorder. When the Panther turned its attention elsewhere, Smith carries Tennant to the aid posts in the church and he then returns to this position alone and continues to keep that road blocked. The battle continues to swirl around the church, um, and all of the other Panther tanks are knocked out in one after the other. Um, Smokey, of course, becomes the third and final Victoria Cross recipient of, of the Italian campaign, and he also was the only private a soldier in World War II to receive such an award. And the entire action in which all this occurred took place in less than an hour. The immediate task was to try and get bridges across to enable reinforcements, and that task takes a while to happen. But then at the end of October, the rains become even worse, and the rivers, all the rivers that the Canadians have crossed from Rimini to Cesena, swell to such a degree that every bridge the Canadian engineers has put in is swept away. So November sees basically everyone stands down because there's no chance of continuing operations. The operations don't begin again until December, and the battle just continues to have the same tenure to it, a fight from one river to another river, more men being killed and lose, uh, being wounded. Um, what we're seeing at this point is another interesting thing, is the Canadian forces are very, very weak. Um, really, they're operating at about 40% of the capacity they should have had, and many of the 
soldiers who are still with us at this point are veterans who a lot of them had come ashore in Sicily and or had um, joined fifth, come ashore when 5th Canadian Army D Division deployed in um, early 1944. So what you see with every passing day is soldiers who had been serving together in many cases for almost a year and a half watching their friends getting killed. And it was interesting when I looked at interviews with veterans for this period and actually talked to some years ago, most of them would not talk about the river battles because it was just too painful. They had buried so many friends in the battlefield um, there. We'll talk a bit about the statistics um, of that. The battle continues in, uh, right through December, through January. Uh, on December 24th, they get to the Senio River and they, uh, it's decided that there will be no further offensive operations beyond the Senio, um, but they're still holding the Germans there. So both sides are sniping away at each other, carrying out raids across the river against each other, trying to get prisoners, trying to kill uh, each other. That's the operation. And it goes on and into February, and the soldiers, the, the privates and sergeants and that, figured they were going to be in Italy to the end of the war, and that this was just going to be how it was going to be. Um, you see morale really dropping as people think, you know, there's no way we're getting out of this alive. But the Allied High Command had different thoughts. They um, wanted to move the Canadians up to Northwest Europe and reunite them with the 1st Canadian Army for the uh, push into the Netherlands and, and uh, Northwest Germany. That operation is called Operation Goldflake. It starts towards the end of February and is ex finally executed and closed down in the middle of March when everyone's pretty much been moved away. And they go on to the liberation of the Netherlands. Behind them, they leave those who had died in the river battles. Now the official tally by Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson in the official history is 2,581 killed or wounded. But in researching this book, I found a lot of other statistics. And the number is far higher. The figures, in fact, are appalling. From September 22, 1944, to the end of the campaign in February, there were 7,214 casualties and 1,276 of those are fatal. That's a, a quarter of the Canadian casualties in the Italian campaign. In the epilogue to my book, I wrote about another cost beyond the casualties. Often the achievements of battalions and their men were dismissed by higher command, or worse, when the operations failed or seceded only at heavy cost, it was the men who were blamed. And again, at the end of the campaign, when many soldiers were shattered, rebuilding their morale, demanded in the Allied High Command that they accept their personal failure. On the contrary, time and again, in writing this book, I was awed by the many accounts of heroism displayed by individual soldiers. 
And as these battles were so often fought by just handfuls of men working together, I decided it is hard not to think of them all as heroes. And so I believe they were. And this presentation tonight and the book here is meant to honor them. Thank you. And we can have questions. Bill. One of the last things you said just now is how mistreated the so or certainly underappreciated the soldiers were by the high command. What did senior command do that so devalued, so so made the, the soldiers so unhappy? They did a lot of things. They when um, like the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment, for example, was, was shredded at the Lamoni River. And um, the higher command blamed the soldiers for failure. And they got rid of the uh, commander of the battalion that uh, was dearly loved by the, the, the soldiers because they, the high command said he hadn't commanded properly and also he had cared too much about the lives of the soldiers and trying to sustain them, and, and he didn't get his objective, and he should have done it. So, you know, there's that kind of thing. It just guts a regiment. And Farley Mowat actually refers to it as that they just felt broken, and it, it, it took them a long time to rebuild and regain their confidence. Who did this, Burns or Montgomery? Burns is gone by this time. Um, so it was, um, it was really... Um, it was um, Desmond, uh, uh, hang on, <laughs> we pause for a quick, Desmond Smith, Desmond Smith, he was, he was acting, he was acting corps commander until Charles Folks arrives, and, and Desmond Smith, in my mind, has a lot to answer for, <laughs> you know, uh, in regard to, to this weakening of the morale of, of the Canadian Canadian troops in the, in the 1st Canadian Infantry Division, particularly. Is he the Des Smith who, who was in the post-war army? <laughs> yeah, he became Commandant of RMC. That's the fellow I'm thinking yeah. of. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, so there was this disconnect between the higher command and, and what was going on on the ground. Um, I think they, they, at the higher command level, they, they still did not want to accept that this country was no good for offensive operations in in winter, you know, they they because you, you see them again and again trying to get the tanks going, and you know the tanks are well, there's a there's oh, it was an intelligence thing. failure, was it? Yeah, they just didn't read the ground. Yeah, yeah, the uh, and you know the aerial photographs. You know, I've looked at aerial photographs, and they're misleading. You know, you look at it, it looks pretty darn good. <laughs> you know, um, you know, but you know, and the Italian—they were using primarily Italian topographic maps, and the maps are <laughs> notoriously poor. Um, and then that's what they were basing their the maps they were creating on. And you know, we see in Ortona where the the gully. The gully on the topographic maps is just this little hairline running along, and you know, then you get to the you, you you go to stand at the gully and you think, my God, um, you know, and so we see this uh, quite a lot uh, happening. Often, when you're uh, doing some research in the archives or interviewing veterans, 
you, you come across a statement or a piece of material that really surprises you, that goes against what you've had, you know, preconceived in your mind. When you're writing or researching this book, did you ever have any of those moments when you're... Really, the biggest one was, was the, 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 the statistics on how many casualties they were. Um, that one boggled me because I got into it and, and started realizing that what Nicholson had done, and it wasn't out of any kind of attempt to fool anyone, is he, he set the statistics for the river battles as starting in October, almost in early November when 1st Canadian Infantry Division returns to the front. The statistics going from 1st of November, say, back to the 22nd of September were just left in abeyance. And then you get in there and you, and, uh, you start looking at it. And the, those figures are available in a couple of documents that uh, um, CMHQ uh, generated in the aftermath. And I think I'm the first person who actually came across them and started reading them and doing the, the number crunching. And um, yeah, that just shocked me because in a way then the river battles, rather than being this sort of denouement of, of the end of the campaign, was one of, should be recognized as one of the major battles of, of the Italian campaign, and it, it's not. So that was an interesting one. And yes, and also you get uh, a veteran who gives an account of what he experienced and it seems at times to run counter to what's in the war diaries. But I've been able to find that usually if I dig back far enough into you know, the other uh, lessons learned that were developed and stuff like that, that I, I can come around and, and pretty much cor corroborate you know, what most of the veterans said that had happened to them. When the Canadian Corps was moved to Northwest Europe, what did the Germans do? The Germans are still pinned down, because uh, there's uh, American divisions and, and um, British divisions, South African division, uh, a number of brigades from other countries as well. Uh, and because those conditions were such as they were, um, none of the German divisions are withdrawn and taken to Northwest Europe. And partly that's, um, those divisions were in pretty bad shape as well. They had been, you know, the, the whole fighting on the Senio, they get pretty badly smashed up in, in the uh, thing as well. And so there's just a slow withdrawal, you know, they're slowly being pushed back towards Venice. And they're also starting to run into real logistics problems in getting supplies from, to come in. And so, you know, it's just sort of the inevitable writing is on the wall. They're going, they surrender uh, when, you know, Kesselring gives it up when, when Germany surrenders. But not until Germany surrenders. Yeah. It's all sort of happens in that. You know, there's that sort of like four or five days where, you know, different parts of the German yeah. army are surrendering okay. and they surrender. Yes, yeah, so speaking on Des Smith, uh, because after the battle, he t takes command of 1st Canadian Infantry Brigade from uh, 
uh, Calder. Yeah. Who got gets sacked? Gets uh, sacked. Similar reasons for the hate with Hastings presented a CO being sacked. Um, and I, I just find it interesting because he he commanded Fifth uh, Canadian Canadian Army Brigade uh, relatively well. Was actually brought in. Uh, to replace the fired uh, BGS of First Corps after the Hitler line, uh, and apparently did quite well there. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just wondering, like, post-war, do you think this had an impact on him? Because I don't know if he got promoted past Brigadier. I don't believe he did. Yeah. Um, so it may well have stalled stalled yeah. his career. Um, you know, and we, you know, we see that where you know, like, there, you know, like. Um, uh, Kitching, you know his yes. his career basically just you know and, and actually it's um, it's didn't, it didn't stop Charles Folks though no <laughs> <laughs> no uh, yeah Folks yeah. there's a great story uh, in in here as well like um, so Chris Major General Chris Folks mm -hmm. First Canadian Infantry Division gets temporary command of First Canadian Corps and everyone thinks he's going to get the the command permanently. But Kurar, Harry, Lieutenant General Harry Kurar, doesn't like folks, and actually says, "It's folks, not folks," mm -hmm. uh, in the decision to who's going to get the command. Yeah. And folks, in his awful memoir, um, says, "I often think, I often thought it might have been a clerical error," <laughs> which of course wasn't. But um, the funny thing is, is then folks comes. To Italy, and it starts off really badly. He flies in, and uh, there's this honor guard at the airport waiting for him, you know, with the red carpet, the whole nine yards. But they land at the wrong airport. So, folks gets off, and there's nobody around to greet him. And he's wandering around with his luggage. And the American pilot takes off and <laughs> leaves him on the runway. And he comes across a bunch of Canadian mechanics who were working on a truck. And he comes up and he says, I'm General Folks. The guy looks at him and says, you're a bloody liar. I know what Major General Chris Folks looks like and you're not him. <laughs> and they turn around and they ignore him. <laughs> so he has to go wandering off down the road with his luggage, uh, gets out to the street and finally gets uh, picked up by somebody who takes him to 8th Army headquarters rather than to 1st Canadian Corps. And he sort of eventually sort of shows up at the 1st Canadian Corps. So very inauspicious start. <laughs> and of course he was in a very bad mood, which um, sort of translated over to some of how he um, initially it, it treats the uh, Corps. Um, so there's a little bit of so if you could sum up the, the downfall of, of General Tommy Burns in, in, you know, maybe two or three sentences, you know, what would be your take on that, you know, on his eventual he, removal? He never gained the confidence of 8th Army from the very get-go because he came in and he was a starch, uh, a starch and procedure-oriented general. He... Um, the loved detailed written plans. Uh, Eighth Army's culture was that they didn't do that. Um, so he was disliked from the get-go uh, by the British High, high Command in, from Montgomery and then Oliver Lees and then Curry. Um, they didn't like him. He also, by the river battles, he's the both 
both Chris Vokes and Bert Hoffmeister are blaming him for a lot of the casualties that are starting to happen, that they think a lot of his orders are leading to unnecessary casualties, that he's trying to rush things. Um, in his defense, it's, you know, McCreary has got a fire burning behind him, you know, uh, making him go for it. Um, but it all comes down to uh, both Volks and Hoffmeister were talking about quitting if, if they, something didn't happen. Um, McCreary didn't want Burns around, and so it was easy to make the decision to, turn, to um, sack him. And he went quietly into the night, and he didn't, uh, he didn't really try and fight um, the, the decision. How did that kind of thing happen? It, um, McCreary would have simply told Burns, Tommy, you're out, or did he have to go to some Canadian authority? He uh, had to get the uh, final, final agreement. Yeah, um, it was a, it was a tough. It took. He would have been out much earlier, um, but the process took a lot longer. Uh, what happened is um, Ralston, the Minister of Defense, actually comes to Italy. And he talks to Hofmeister and he talks to Vokes and he looks around at things and he sort of can see that Burns is losing the faith. And I think it's Ralston. It might be one of his underlings. Um, but um, it's in the book. And definitely Ralston was there. And then, you know, there was more ana analysis that was happening. And so there is a feeling that the yes, burns can be gotten rid of. Creerar no, didn't really care for burns either. And, and at this point, and this is somewhat uh, theoretical, and, and I'm borrowing this from other, a couple other historians. Um, Creerar, it's Gramstein particularly. Creerar um, is looking forward to who's going to be the commander of the Canadian Army in post-war, who's suitable for it. And what's coming up as a logical candidate is Guy Simmons. But Creerar hates Guy Simmons. These two men have filed reports on each other claiming that each of them is insane. You know, <laughs> this is, there is a lot of bad blood there. Folks is more manageable. He, he, he's of a career or kind of ilk. He was bland. Yeah. <laughs> and career kind of liked bland. Um, so then you, you see the guiding, you know, it's, it's, and for folks to become the senior commander of the Canadian Army, he had to have core command in World War II. So that's, that was the thinking. And uh, there we go. And he, and, you know, it doesn't make much of a post-war general either, you know. <laughs> and it'd be interesting to know what would have happened if Simmons had become the uh, commander, uh, but that's all hypothetical. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for coming out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And you just heard at his book lunch at Novel Idea Bookstore on November 7th, 
Mark Zulke uh, reference and uh, read from, discuss his new book, and then fielded a bunch of questions at the end. Uh, the book, again, was called River Battles, Canada's Final Campaign in World War II Italy. Tell you what, let's do this uh, now, and I'll be right back. I mean, if there's a listener-supported radio station, you're, it means that people can get daily, every day, a different way of looking at the world, not just what the corporate media want you to see, but a different picture, a different understanding, a different picture, a different understanding. Not only can you hear it, but you can participate in it. You can add your own thoughts, you know, and you can learn something and so on. Well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way uh, people become uh, human, you know. That's the way you become human participants in a, in a social and political system. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. Since 1922, CFRC Radio has been the campus and community radio station for Queens and Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is both listener-supported and listener-created radio, bringing both music and spoken word content to our community on 101.9 FM and around the world on cfrc.ca. Support locally created media. Learn more at cfrc.ca. Folk everything. Every Saturday morning from 10 till noon on CFRC. Traditional folk, modern folk, future folk, and strange deviations from the norm. Hear the legacy of folk music and discover new favorites and forgotten classics on Folk Everything. Join me every Saturday morning at 10 for a romp through folk culture here on CFRC. Says Red to James, that's a fine motorbike. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock, and we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. And uh, now we're going to jump into uh, the first round of uh, the November 5th uh, Open mic in a series, and it's called the And the Journey Continues Open Mic uh, Reading Series. Uh, it is done in the round, meaning that a poet reads one poem, and they, there's a sign-up sheet uh, that I work off of, uh, reads one poem, and sits down, and then the next person, I call the next person up to the mic, and then it just keeps going on like that, and when we get through the list, there's always been time to go through the list again, and sometimes there's actually been time to go through the list twice, so we're going to go ahead and start with the first round of the November 5th, and the journey continues, open mic uh, reading in that monthly series, and in this uh, session, and I'll have time to just air one of these groupings, You'll hear readings by Ron Chase, Leanne Taras, 
and Graham and Gwen Whitford, and here they are. Up first this evening, we have Ron Chase. Let's bring him up. Empty. He awoke with his lips pressed against her long neck. Smooth as glass. He slowly forced his eyes open and tried to peek out his haze through the sand and remnants of the night. They burned and his brain ignited like a wildfire. He reached out to touch her for some comfort. She fell to the floor and rolled under the bed as empty as he was. Let's give Ron another hand and bring up Lee and Terrace. The land of lost things. It's always autumn there when the light begins to wane. The air is chilly and crisp, scented with nostalgia. There are tumbling hills and languid lagoons. The sky is gray and drab, reflecting loneliness and abandonment. This is the land of lost things, belongings misplaced by the careless and absent-minded, haphazard piles of discarded possessions. There's a red leather glove, tattered and worn, an old army coat with holes in the pockets where plenty of silver coins and even a $100 bill were lost, a myriad, too, of rose rosary beads, solitary earrings longing for their mates, necklaces of all kinds, but especially ones with crosses and hearts, dog-eared books, sapia-tinted photographs, and ardent love letters gone astray, rusty neglected pruning shears, spectacles, and countless umbrellas of every size, pattern, and shade. Missing manuscripts, wayward musical notes, mislaid ideas, ideals, and innocence. A collection of little toy soldiers and battered dolls with one eye or missing hair and limbs. All but vanished passports, luggage, bicycles, keys, and directions. There's the ghosts of wasted friendships and marriages, vast menageries of lost children, travelers, and ships, all beyond the hope of a compass. So many stray and feral cats, coupled with dogs hungry for home. There's even a flea-bitten cockatiel. This is the land of lost things, resonating a mythical haunted sorrow, expansive, broken, and forsaken. As Leanne Terrace, let's give her a and bring up Anne Graham. Okay, thank you. Um, this is kind of funny because I picked this uh, book up in this little um, secondhand store uh, just just along here, and uh, I thought, oh, I just I, I, I was leaping to it. I thought I love this. And then I, I just mentioned it to a few people here, and they say, oh, Robert W. Service, uh, you know, <laughs> he's a great Canadian poet. 
playing mass, that's M-A-S, meaning masquerade. Um, mountain chickens are a very big frog that are now critically endangered, and they are still a symbol of Dominica. The poem is as such. Waitakubali haiku. Tall is her body, lush green beauty all around. Waitakubali. Deep in the forest, hot mineral waters flow, soothing and healing. Working up a sweat, traversing mountain ridges, nature island hikes, Roso Market Fair. After God, it is the land, nature island gold. Jump up and free up, playing mass in carnival. Festivals are fun. Sights seen on the sea, whales breach and dolphins playing, nature isle delights. Endangered turtles, mountain chickens all but gone, nature island strife. Storms wreak destruction, Maria ravaged the land, climate change is here. Resilient people recover from tragedy. Life does carry on. A place of welcome, warmth, and friendliness abound. Nature Island pride. Thank you. So we give Gwen Whitford And that was uh, Gwen Whitford. Uh, in fact, you just heard... Readings in this order by Ron Chase, Leanne Taurus, Anne Graham, and Gwen Whitford. In the first round of the And the Journey Continues monthly open mic series. And it's held at the Elm Cafe. And uh, I don't have enough time in this hour to go through upcoming events, but I certainly do in the second hour. Uh, I'm going to actually, I'll explain it in a second, I'm going to introduce a little bit of music because I don't do that very often on this show and I kind of miss not doing it very often. And uh, But so uh, before I do that though, I want to uh, let you know you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Uh, my name is Bruce here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. And I'd uh, like to say thanks for tuning in to the first hour of today's show and hope you can stay tuned to the second hour. Uh, what we're going to do is finish up in it the first round uh, that I'd mentioned of the And the Journey Continues open mic reading and how that's done. And we're actually going to move into the first readings of the second hour uh, today as well. A quick mention as well that each hour of the show each week is uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after I get home. Uh, that site is finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. It will remain there for four years. Uh, it also will appear this weekend on our podcast as a podcast, and you can access that in a number of ways. The easiest uh, might be just to go to the radio station and access it there, but you can also do it uh, through the show's title and uh, on any of the podcast uh, sites, I believe. So I know there's Apple, Stitcher. Uh, I'm not that familiar with all of them, but those are some options there. What I'm going to do is someone actually I mentioned to them that I keep bump, keep ending up in places where 
I was a big fan, and, and I still really love their music, of uh, Simon and Garfunkel way back in the day. And uh, mentioned to someone, it's uh, I'm going to have to actually buy their CD because I still do that kind of thing. And uh, mentioned that to him a couple of days ago, so I'd like to thank Dennis for actually buying me a, a copy of their greatest hits. And so I'm going to share this um, that was compiled in 1972 and I'm going to play one of my favorite of their songs still kind of some of the things in there as true today as they were what 72 almost 50 years ago here's their song America Look for 
And you just heard, again, uh, Simon and Garfunkel with their song called America. And uh, it is now about half a minute past 5 o'clock. Welcome back to the second hour of today's show. You are listening again to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. I'm here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock, and we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. In this second hour, I'm going to go back into, again, the November 5th and the Journey Continues open mic in that monthly open mic reading series. Again, always held at the Elm Cafe. And as we finish the first round, you'll hear readings by Jenny Marshall, Time Victim, Sasha Hill, Bob McKenzie, Meg Freer, Matt Drabenstadt, uh, Ken Chin, Lyle Miriam, Corey Toke, Chris Kearney, uh, John Rose, Sarah Emtage, Eric Folsom, and me. And then we're going to, I think there's going to be just enough time to begin uh, the second round. And anything you're going to hear is some of the same people you just heard. Uh, you'll hear again Ron Chase, Ann Graham, Gwen Whitford, and uh, then Jenny Marshall again in that hour, and Sasha Hill a second time in this hour coming up. Uh, this first, though, the usual hourly announcement uh, that occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on the show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. Okay, let's continue now with that second uh, grouping of uh, poets in the first round of the November 5th and the Journey Continues open mic uh, reading series. And up next in it, you'll hear from readings that evening, or I should say a reading that evening by Jenny Marshall and a followed by a performance by Time Victim, and here they both are. And let's bring up Jenny Marshall. It's great to be back here. I haven't been here since, I don't know how long, I think July. Nice to see everybody's smiling faces. Uh, this poem is called Walking Each Other Home. Analyzing what is said from what is done becomes a blood-sucking energy drain. I would know because this is my modus operandi. Guess what? Objectivity is merely a myth. Our respective baggage dangles atop an emotional whirlpool, swirling subjectivity into the mix. Realizing this sets our brains free, free from ironclad assumptions heading south. I just want to listen handing you the talking stick. I just want to absorb your story, your own truth, 
After all, we are just walking each other home. Thank you. It was Jenny Marshall. Let's give her another.
for another hand. And you just heard a reading by Jenny Marshall and a performance by Time Victim in the first round of the uh, And the Journey Continues monthly open mic reading held at the Elm Cafe up next in it uh, from uh, readings or performances, again, by Sasha Hill, Bob McKenzie, and Meg Freer. Bring up Sasha Hill. with you. It's one that I wrote um, a while ago, but I hope you still enjoy it. It's called Queasy. Is the music too loud? Quiet? Good? Got me feeling real queasy, wouldn't want like easy. Fight anxiety by keeping busy. Sick in my stomach. Throw a party when I throw up. Confetti ballooning, almost grow up. Finger paint my memory. This paint but numbers got me counting calories. Can't look too tight in these too tight jeans. Fit on a cafe walls like I never fit in. Thorns in my side, I'm not a wallflower. Throw my ego into a tower. Fit her in a ten-story building. Hit her head on the ceiling. Think I'm wicked now. Didn't show the real me. Should I bring her out? Bring her out? Think I, think I, think I threw her out. Garbage day, Sunday school. Always learn something new. Bells ring, 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 ring. Ringing in my head. A tennis call. Can't say my real name at all. Glory or gore. Mirrored in a chalkboard. Uh. Loose on this news, fruit loop eyes pop, pop, popping out of her skull. Candy like brains oozing from her nose. Sugar coated smiles when I let her go. Innocent, frivolous, time spent lavishly. Perfect when you look at me, kind of like Victoria's Secret. Ten feet tall and rickety heels, man. Give me all the feels. Wanna get messy, just a quick seshi. We'll go fish, go figure right around your wrist. Both no won't last for eternity. Drink that elixir like it could. Spitting origami, paper masterpieces. Look at me like I lost a stare back at you, don't found it. Uh, gin and tonic on your lips, tongue between my hips. Ooh, got real intimate, but my hips don't lie. And I don't not, not on the first date at least. Not the beauty, more of a beast. Grease your standard D, look like a nice girl. Actually, never ace the spelling B. A A R E V A R K. King Arthur gave me the chalice. I want a keys to the palace so I could put my feet up. Live in my mama's house. Feel like I never grew up. Head in the clouds. Room is laying down and I'll be dreaming on stars. Stars shoot my dreams off the walls constantly. So I gotta scrub clean my dreams off the walls and put my pain, 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 paintings in the closet. Count them all up. All of these thoughts racing through my head. 100 meter dash till I see you. Oh, what's up? Nothing new. Thinking of you, do you disapprove, prove? Proving myself worthy by getting up early. Still feeling surly when you gross me out. Hands grope the rope around my waist. Been chased since today. Make no mistake, I'm not the takeaway dish, not miss. Take me out to a cafe booth. We can make strong eye contact and have a lot here too. Little later, they'll leave me by the wayside. My insides will rot like fireflies. Burn up the sky at night. Wildlife fantasies, murder mysteries always thrilled me. So, remember when I warned you, put red flashing lights up along a bright night. When I look angry, you know you shouldn't cross me. 
Uh, even with all these crooked candy teeth, I still can't remember how to smile sweetly. Hey, thank you guys. Sasha Hill and to bring up Bob McKenzie. This is uh, about a piano. Bandaged in strips of packing tape, the sad piano waits at the corner, intersection of two empty streets, holding handwritten paper signs. Free, the signs say, free at last. But why is there an apple on his head? Perhaps an overture to William Tell? Or has this piano endured a windfall? Upright at the crossroad it waits, another piano hoping to hitch a ride somewhere near or far to sing again at the touch of eager, loving fingers. Kenzie, let's give him another hand, bring up Meg Freer. Today would have been my father's 80th birthday. Uh, he died back in February. This poem is based on a nearly illegible handwritten list that he made of things that he wanted to someone to retrieve from home after he had to move into a long-term care uh, home. And unfortunately, he was never able to use or appreciate this uh, list of items. It's called Splintered Glass Thoughts. I had to fight with a king all night about the words in my head, ice cream, fish, milk, baby. But when I read them aloud, the meaning came out all wrong. Things to bring to the memory care home. But where to put them? Light from my bedside table, wallet, sunglasses. Mendeleev saw the periodic table in a dream. Seizure prevention pills. Lurking danger over head work, the mind's tricks. Toothpaste and electric toothbrush. Absence of the need ever to buy parsley again cold weather coats and vests. Crocodiles don't experience senescence. Appointment book, nail clipper, scissors. Crepitation of muscle spindles. Big and small Swiss knives, alarm clock, cylinder with $2. Tip the scales of exhaustion. Leica M6 manual, camera bag, lens cleaner. Occasional shutters, open windows, scattered photos. Watercolors and paper, pens and Mont Blanc pencils. Smithereens gleam on a blacksmith's floor. The two books I wrote, all coherence gone, only fit for bedlam. Books by Shakespeare, Milton, Dunn. Puck the narrator, bottom, the heart of the play. Wallace Stevens, Billy Collins, Richard Hugo. My birthday balloon, a giant menacing shrimp. Kenner's book, The Elsewhere Community. Blind, deconvolution. 
poems of Louise Bogan and Marianne Moore. Leave the poem to simmer on the laptop. All volumes of Valerie. Limitless, comp uh, limitless compression of underwater adagio. Two volume dictionary plus magnifying glass. No word for craving the glove's buttery slide off a small hand. Photo of B sitting in our Austin Healy as often as you dream it. Thank you. Meg Freer, let's give her another hand. And you just heard a uh, performance uh, in this grouping. You heard a performance by Sasha Hill and then readings by Bob McKenzie and Meg Freer. Again, in the first round of the End the Journey Continues monthly open mics uh, reading series held at the Elm Cafe and up next from it, uh, you're going to hear in this order readings by Matt Dravenstadt, Ken Chin, Lyle Merriam and Corey Toke. Bring up Matt Gravenstack. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, thank you to the poets who have read so far, and a big thanks for Bruce for convening this space. Uh, I'm going to read a a segment of a poem that I wrote for a very good friend of mine who recently got married two weeks ago at the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Um, so this, this poem was uh, written for uh, him and his wife. And here it goes. Call it cast iron love, forged to outlast redwoods and mountains, Flame-kissed, seasoned with campfire and tail, always keeping warm kindness to be shared at a growing table of a joyful heart. A nestled gratefulness complete with zero elbow room and a full glass. A love that porch swings slow sips black coffee on a crisp autumnal morning, marveling the fire maple shimmer catching hues of caramel, saffron, and tupelo. A cozy rootedness complete with Labrador exploded leaf piles. A love that gathers armfuls of empire and pink ladies in a sun-spotted orchard. To bake a pie with a family recipe that is only passed down in the pinch-twist finesse of the fluted crust pressed down, shaken together, baked at 400, and running over. Close Matt Dravenstadt. Let's give him another hand. Bring up Ken Chin. This one's called Indigenous. Do you have your status card? I stood there frozen, not quite understanding the question. Then I realized the cashier mistook me for First Nations. It happens quite often, being mistaken for an indigenous person. For the most of us, 
the only interaction with indigenous people is out on the street. We never see the third world conditions that they live in, those out of the way places called reserves, where the government dumped them so we don't have to see them or care for them. I don't know much about Native history, but looking the way I do, it was easy for me to talk to them. From what I have learned, gave me as an immigrant an uneasy feeling that I may be building my life on stolen land. Not just the land, but the treatment of the First Nations people. I suppose because this is Canada, we don't outright murder them all, but settle for cultural genocide, like at the residential schools. Yes, the government has made apologies, but words sound hollow when nothing changes. Even as recent as the mid-20th century, the Department of National Defense took land to be used as training camps in World War II, land that has never been given back. Even more recent, does anyone remember the gun battle at Oka? What about those indigenous women that disappeared or murdered on that highway of tears? Canada, in the eyes of the world, is supposed to be the good guy. But did you know that the South African government sent representatives to study our reservation system so that it might be used in South Africa? Imagine that, a racist apartheid government looking to Canada as a model. So what does that make Canada? And here we accuse places like Iran and North Korea of poor human rights. You cannot point accusing fingers when your hand is covered in blood. As Canadians, we inherit the sins of our fathers. Ours was not the generation that started this, but it can be the generation that finally lives up to the treaties and treat them as real people instead of an inconvenience. For so long, we have been telling them that they could do or could not do this. Why don't we start by really listening to them and not only have the token Indian around just to ease our new age guilt-ridden minds. It used to bother me to be mistaken for an indigenous, indigenous person. Not anymore. It's not so bad being mistaken for one of the last people to walk this earth in true freedom before colonization. And the People's Party billboard that says no mass immigration, I don't have a problem with that. It's just that it's 500 years too late. It should have been up along the shores of St. Lawrence when Jacques Cartier and Chandler de Champlain landed. Thank you. <laughs> Ken Chin, give him another hand. Bring up Lyle Marion. This is called Tempest. The storm that was raging out of doors made a fitting metaphor for the tempest in my life. I stood and watched the lightning flash. I heard the thunder roar and crash and forgot my private strife. The wind that howled around the walls and caused the limbs of trees to fall helped me to forget that things were not going well and making life a daily hell and causing me to fret. The storm soon went upon its way. The darkness faded to a dingy gray, and the rain had a gentler sound. 
His steady patter brought me calm and gave my wounded spirit balm as it watered the thirsty ground. Thunder and lightning are transient things, but with, the, with them comes the rain that brings nourishment to the grass. When your life's not growing according to plan, consider the words of the knowing man who said, this too shall pass. Thank you. Salaam Maryam, let's give him another hand. Bring up Corey Toke. So this piece is currently lacking a title. If anyone has any suggestions, please chase me down on the break. Thought and memory are an old man's companions, while impaled, he hangs and observes his vigil. Keeping company with tricksters, he watches each. Fearful will pluck his remaining eye. Thank you. Corey Toke, give him another hand. And you just heard readings by, um, in this order, Matt Dravenstadt, Ken Chin, Lyle Merriam, and Corey Toke. Uh, again, that was in the first round of the And the Journey Continues monthly open mic reading. The series is held at the Elm Cafe. And up next from and concluding that first round, uh, you're going to hear readings by uh, Chris Carney. John Rose, Sarah Emtish, Eric Folsom, and uh, myself. Here we go. Bring up Chris Carney. Hello. Uh, this, uh, this poem's untitled. Don't get too high, don't get too low. Too low takes you high, and too high takes you low. This world shakes those screws loose, you lousy sack of bones. Twist them tight, yes, real tight, you lousy sack of bones. When will you learn, when will you learn, you lousy sack of bones. Thank you. Chris Carney, give him another hand, bring up JR. just walk out the door, have to brush my teeth, have to take an endless piss of leftover beer, have to shower and moisturize and apply all my salves and ointments for all my late thirties ailments. I'm a walking cavalcade of corporal chores. Arrival. Everyone at the office is super enthusiastic about doing nothing again today. One time I watched my brother rebuild an entire bathroom. I watched my dad resuscitate a car back to life with his bare hands. I watched my mom go into work day after day and support the community. Do you know what I do? I write gibberish. Poppycock. I use words like exacerbate and ameliorate. I'm an amorphous typewriter automaton man. The meeting. While the professor drones on about ontology and epistemology, what if I got on all fours, barked like a Springer Spaniel, took a shit on the floor and ran out the door and never to be seen again? What if I overturned the desk and jumped up the second-story window? What would happen if, for once, something actually happened? End of the day. 
shake loose those manufactured light, pry me out of this farty, disingenuous cubicle. I can only feel a wisp of fresh air from some window ajar. I can just barely hear a bird tweeting. After work. Don't take your work home with you, please. Just don't. Because she'll have to suffer through your drunken, ridiculous tirades about bureaucracy and bourgeois ethics. Put a fucking sock in it. Bedtime. I used to sleep so soundly, but listen. Do you hear me grinding my teeth? I'm dreaming about something to do with freedom and justice. But really, I'm probably just dreaming about cheesecake and sex. JR, let's give him another hand. Bring up Sarah M. Tate. from City Hall, at, at least not like I'm allowed to so I figured I should, I should do that. Uh, it is called Basics. Um, yeah, I guess I'm just gonna... I'm back at Food Basics for potatoes and carrots and milk and some patience and tea and the merits of shopping alone. Then back on the street in the wind and the rain and the stoplights and sleet till I get back again to the wholeness of being at home. Was Sarah Entage? Just give her give her another hand. Bring up uh, Eric Folsom. Hi. I thought I could do this without introduction, but. On second thought, maybe you won't get it. Um, it's sort of a meditation on being non-binary or some species of queer. And, uh, it's in the form of a song. Walking back to the hotel. Teasingly, you told me I didn't really know what the heck I was, and I could not disagree. Though your remark puzzled and hurt me just a bit, we continued to walk together drunkenly. Through the late night darkness, you saw me to my room, high above the harbor full of ships brightly lit. Waters I couldn't fathom, changeable as weather or the banter of tipsy lovers walking home. I concede my ambiguity to myself, but wonder whether confusion was mine alone. Gender fluid might not be the right term for me, but I have a low melting point, as you should know. As usual. So tease me no longer. Explain how to appeal. What language I should wear. What rainbows to reveal. Thank you. That was Eric Folsom. Let's give him another hand. I think I'm the last person on the list for the first round. And uh, this is called Memory. And right after this, we're going to take a break. Clouds of nostalgia, raining new droplets of days, old days, malleable, fluid, 
sliding through, running off, sticking to nothing, really. Rolling off the sides of walls and seeing them flooding into drain pipes. But still, in all things, then in its going, in that slight crack of light, remains yet a glossy sheen. Thanks. And you just heard uh, from the uh, first, yeah, we're still, yeah, that was the last one of the first round of uh, last grouping of the first round. Uh, and in it, you heard Matt Dravenstadt, Ken Shin, Lyle Merriam. Nope. That was the wrong group. You just heard Chris Carney, John Rose, Sarah Emtige, Eric Folsom, and me. I had my finger on the wrong line there. In the conclusion of the first round, at the uh, at the end, the journey continues. Open mic reading, and up next from it, we're going to move into the second round that evening, and you're going to hear uh, readings or performances by Ron Chase, Anne Graham, Gwen Whitford, Jenny Marshall, and Sasha Hill. Here we go. The Mass. Laying under a sacred tree on sacred ground, in sacred sleep, icy raindrops washed away his sin. They dripped like holy water onto decades of leaf litter. A chorus of crows lifted a requiem that echoed in the cathedral of that forest on that day. He no longer smelled the leaves. He no longer heard the dirge. Thanks. That was Ron Chase. Let's give him another hand, bring up Anne Graham. Stop the nonsense of falling and springing. My stomach tells me it's not in first. It's frequently growling its displeasure. Please leave our time alone. Leave it alone. If the sun and moon can work together, do you imagine you tiny humans can do better? Really? Well, shame on you. The tide won't listen to your puny laws. As we bring up Gwen Whitford, let's give Adam Graham another hand. This is another of my tropical 
Moonlight Musings. It's called Game Changer. How often we cringe when faced with change, life's other apparent constant besides death and taxes. Our morbid fear of the six-letter word can send us into fits of pique. Those longed-for flights of fancy hardly ever happen. If only we could prevent the inevitable, find the fountain of youth, hold the winning ticket, have lifelong health, confident that our wildest dreams would become reality on another galaxy. Sometimes we may be lucky, but chances are we greet the unexpected with reluctance and regret. The human conditioned, programmed to resist rather than embrace the infamous game called change that shapes and marks our journey, the ebb and flow of life. As we bring up Jenny Marshall, let's give uh, Gwen Whitford another hand. It's called Communication. I think that you have pulled away, so I ricochet. An alteration without an altercation. It is perilously easy to roll down a destructive road when peering through a kaleidoscope of random interpretations. Communication miscommunication, flip sides of the same coin, with a 50% chance of getting it right. We sit down together, removing cell phone privileges, temporarily, no need to palpitate, time to speak from the heart, no matter what the cost, time to listen, filling the void with understanding, with hope, and most of all, with love. Communication has been known to unlock doors. Communication has been known to save hearts from breaking. As we bring up Sasha Hill, let's give Jenny Marshall another hand. Cartoons. 
jealous of the television. All the life it's been living, no lie. Giving to the tides of heaven, I've been since 94. Always want more rainbows, trust what I've been told. No one never find the gold, cartoons don't grow old. So we don't know, don't change my channel. Huh, don't do it, get a bruising. Got my rocket power on YTV. Canadian kid, you know me. I'm always skipping on CDs. Eyes red from a Game Boy screen. My Pikachu all leveled up. I'm meeting Kenny till I'm throwing it up. It's a Holy Ghost when your favorite show show up on the television. Big bowl of cereal. That's all that matters. All you really need. Oh, take me back to those days. Those days, those days. Yeah. When we would just kick it. We would just kick it. Oh. We kick in nostalgia, we kick in nostalgia, yeah, we kick in nostalgia, hey, we kick it, we, we, we kick it. Was a rug right in my mama's home, I didn't know on all the channels, no, had to go to dad's house, never rode a school bus, had to walk a block a mile in my shoes, my shoes tied up, tag, we racing, still playing, 25, running out of time, speed on the playground now, double, double, there ya. I was bullied as a kid, had to come on back up Was my dad and a brother in a pickup truck No one bothered me after that My parties had pizza, pinky and the brain Teach me to be an evil genius, huh? Work on the genius part, and heroes couldn't find me I was just a baby in a mystery van I turned off Dragon Ball Z Couldn't take all the screaming, Kamehameha, nah Fortune teller, please tell me how to feel Futurama with that so raven I caved in, I'm a bit different Little animaniac in a modern life Gotta wake up from a cartoon coma I just wanna kick it I just wanna kick it I just wanna kick it Yeah, 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 yeah Kick in nostalgia Sasha Hill, another hand. And that finishes up. Uh, here we go. Uh, you just heard in the first uh, in the first grouping. You heard the first grouping in the second round of uh, the and the journey continues uh, monthly open mic reading series held at the Elm Cafe. And uh, the poets you heard that evening uh, were Ron Chase, Ann Graham, Gwen Whitford, Jenny Marshall, and then Sasha Hill, who rounded it up. And there are about uh, 20 minutes uh, left uh, to air from that. I'm hoping that I can work it in uh, next week. Uh, we'll see how that works out. Uh, I can't even really add another grouping just because uh, the grouping time limits won't let me. There just aren't enough minutes in this hour, I guess, is the easiest way to say it, to do that and also do what I really should do. And I'm going to at least uh, touch on uh, upcoming events. But first, we've got some recorded things, so I'm going to go ahead and Hear those first, and I'll be right back. The Kingston Community House for Self-Reliance, widely known as 99 York, 
has for 30 years been providing a central, low-cost meeting space for groups that allow like-minded people to come together to learn from one another, to share resources and trade skills. The goal of this house is to act as an integral part of the neighborhood in which it is located. On a typical evening, an autism caregiver relief group will be at 99 York, together with a 12-step organization and a transgendered support group, while a social justice and homeschooling group may be booked in the following day. The community house is also available for less official functions, such as barbecues, birthday and office parties, and other social gatherings. We are proud to also serve the Queen's community. For more information, visit 99 York Street in Kingston. Go to www.99york.org, email info at 99york.org, or call 613-542-1136. here on CFRC 101.9, Monday nights at 7. which has offered service to youth in the Kingston area since 1974. The goals of the organization are to allow youth to take responsibility for their behavior, to reduce the number of youth involved in the young offender system, to reduce the number of people victimized by youth in our community, and to involve the community in youth corrections. The Youth Diversion Program believes that all members of our community have the responsibility to provide all youth with the opportunity to develop and grow to their fullest potential. They work in partnership with the community to develop quality programs to assist youth to make positive changes in their lives and at the same time take responsibility for their actions. For further information, call 613-548-4535 or email info at youthdiversion.com. Do you like to dance? Tune into The Hustle with DJ Bolt every Friday night between 11 p.m. and midnight. Where you'll hear all the newest dance, electronic, French touch, booty bass, ghetto, deep, and tech house remixes and more. Let The Hustle take you to midnight and beyond at 11 p.m. on 4 to the Floor Fridays. Only on CFRC 101.9 FM. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. And uh, going to start to kind of close out the show today. I, If you listen to both hours, you, you realize that once uh, or that today for 
First time in a while I played uh, a bit of music, and uh, I told you the reason why, uh, but it's a newly acquired CD and a duo that I've always loved uh, since I listened to them as a kid. Uh, so uh, I'm going to play another one, uh, another cut off of uh, Simon and Garfunkel's Looks like this is called the Greatest Hits album, so there are some really good songs on there as well. So I'm going to do that, uh, but first, uh, and it's also getting that time of year, I want to share a few events, upcoming events, uh, but first, uh, so I don't I don't run myself out of time to do that. I do want to thank you for tuning in today. Again, you've been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. I'm here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. And I uh, just want to remind you as well that each hour of this show each week is uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after the show ends. And uh, you can find it at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. Uh, all shows remain there for four years. And I hope you can tune in next week. Uh, I think uh, tentatively I've got a couple of, got at least one book launch event uh, that I'm going to definitely try to air next week. And again, I told you I've got about 20 minutes left of this, and maybe I can get... All of that in there, or uh, but anyway, I'll tell you what, tune in next week and you'll find out. And also, uh, I want to say, too, that I hope you can uh, stay tuned uh, uh, for uh, two hours of East Coast music right at the top of the hour with uh, in a show called Saltwater Music, uh, hosted by Rob Carnell. That's at the top of the hour. And again, I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. I've got a couple of minutes, it looks like, right now to go ahead. And uh, there aren't a lot of things going on. And once it's getting this time of the year that are coming up very quickly, but there are a couple of things that I want to mention. Uh, uh, there are two authors. Uh, David O'Keefe will, will be at Indigo Books signing his new book, uh, Seven Days in Hell. Joining him will be Ted Barris, uh, also signing his new book called Rush to Danger. That's coming up this Sunday, December 15th, uh, from 10 a.m. to noon at Indigo Books. That's in the Cat Center, uh, 945 Gardeners Road. For those of you out of town or not sure where that is, uh, there is, uh, yeah. And there is also, it's pretty cool, a reading coming up that night and Sunday evening at 7 p.m. It's uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, a reading by Peter Aston, Wendy Luella Perkins, Charlie Walker, Michelle Mallon, and Donald Mitchell with William and Adele Mitchell. Uh, they will read uh, uh, Charles Dickens' novel uh, and uh, called, again, A Christmas Carol. Admission is just by donation, and uh, we'll support the SSUC uh, Community Outreach Activities and St. James Kenya Initiative Project. So, again, uh, starts at 7 p.m. Uh, this Sunday evening at the Spire, and the Spire is located at 82 Sydenham Street in Kingston here. So... Go to the Spire's uh, Facebook page. You probably get a bit more, bit more information about it. 
And with that, it looks like I have essentially run myself out of time. But those are the two things coming up this weekend. And uh, there's really not much going on this week. So after following that, so again, I want to thank you for tuning in and here today. And I hope you have a good week. And here is uh, Kathy's song again by Simon and Garfunkel off of uh, 1972 collection of their greatest hits. Have a great week. I hear the drizzle on the Like a memory it falls Soft and warm continuing Tapping on my roof and walls And from the shelter My mind's distracted and diffused My thoughts are many miles away They lie with you when you're asleep Kiss you when you start your day And the song I was writing is left undone don't know why I spend my time writing songs I can't believe with words that tear and strain to rhyme and so you see I have come to doubt All that I once held is true I stand alone without beliefs The only truth I know is you And as I watch the drops of rain
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Thank you.